and welcome to Insight Studios. Today we continue our study in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 2, verses 16 through 23. Your presenter is Pastor Kimberly Orr. All right, I have 10 o'clock, so let's begin with a word of prayer. Good morning, good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Let us pray. Holy God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you for being our living Lord. We thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you, Lord, for working through uh, Matthew and working through his community to bring to us, Lord, um, your, just your personality, your being, your desires for us. And so, Lord, right now, we just decree and declare understanding and wisdom and knowledge. Uh, Lord, may we leave here transformed by your spirit. Holy God, we just ask that you would help us uh, to just be gentle with ourselves today. Lord, forgive us for our sins, knowing that even in the midst of our sin, you love us and you desire to redeem us and make us new. And Lord, we also ask that you would give us the grace to forgive others who have hurt or offended us in any way, especially during this season. May we make a special effort in you uh, to make right any relationships that have difficulty in them. And so, Lord, we just look to you for that strength. And, Lord, we forgive persons who have hurt us in the past in Jesus' name. And, Lord, uh, we just ask that you would help us not to yield to the temptations of our lives, Lord, but to rely and to lean on you. Uh, shield us from the wiles of the evil one in your name, Lord Jesus. For you indeed are our living word, the great I am, and we give you praise in Christ's name. Amen. 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 Okay, well, we are in the last portion of Matthew chapter 2. We're going to be uh, at verse 16 through the end. Verse 16 uh, through the end of the chapter. Thank you, Brother Steve. Uh, and so there's quite a bit. It may not look like a lot of verses, but there's actually a lot of depth here. So let's read verse 16 through the end of the chapter, that's 16 through 23 of Matthew chapter 2. I'll read the first verse, and if someone would just read the next one, and so forth. And if you would speak out uh, up for the sake of the recording. Then Herod... When he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, the Magi, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then what had been spoken when Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled, a voice was heard in Ramah weeping, and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because they were no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in the dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that um, Archelaus 
uh, was reigning in Judea in place of his father, Herod. He was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was, so was fulfilled what was said through the prophets. He will be called a Nazarene. All right. So that's the little section that we're um, going to be concentrating on today. Now you have two maps, and I invite you to take out the map sheet for now. And if you will look on, first of all, uh, the side that says the map of Israel in the New Testament, the blue and white side, predominantly blue and white, says the map of Israel in the New Testament at the bottom. There we go. So let's follow where... Jesus and um, Joseph and Mary have been and where the wise men have been. So you find Bethlehem right there in the middle of the page. All right. You see Jerusalem. Okay. So if you'll put your finger or your pen right there on Bethlehem, we surmised last week that the flight to Egypt probably went down through Hebron rather than Gaza. The main road to Egypt was through Gaza and along the coast. But again, because probably they wanted to avoid notice, they would have gone down through Hebron. All right? So if you follow that across, and if you were to go off the map to your left, that's Egypt. All right? So uh, they are probably somewhere, it is unknown exactly where they were in Egypt, but they are probably hidden among Jewish populations in Egypt. Remember we said last week there were about a million Jews in Egypt at this time, and probably they end up somewhere in the central <coughs> delta or up by Alexandria. Um, they stay there for a couple of three years. We know that Herod dies in 4 BC. We know his son, which is listed here, Archelaus, uh, becomes the new king in this area. Now, when we say king, these are not descendants of the royal house of David. Let's be real clear. These are people who have been put in place. Uh, they're Jewish, but they're secular Hellenist Jews. They were put in place uh, by the Roman government as under kings. Okay, they're called tetrarchs. They're under kings. They're sub kings. Right. Um, Herod has a great deal of power and money. His family is very wealthy. He is well endowed by the Roman government. But his reign is dependent on his successful and good behavior, a.k.a. subduing the people <laughs> in, under his reign to be, quote-unquote, peaceful. Remember, Pax Romana means if you go along and get along, you're good. But if you raise your head up, it's going to get chopped off. And Herod has spent much of his young adult life killing off his rivals. Now, he is in a place of security at this point, correct? But we also discussed last week, just to review, that when he found out that there might be a rival to the throne, someone from the legitimate house of David, Jesus, <laughs> we're going to kill this boy. Right? So... Uh, that's where we find ourselves here. So, after Herod the Great dies, and his son, who's still 
much like his father, is in place but still doesn't have the power and a footprint as his father did, or Calius doesn't. So God comes to them, comes to the Joseph in a, yet another dream. Remember, Joseph, the legal father of Jesus, is much like his namesake in the First Testament. He's a dreamer. God speaks to him in dreams. So an angel of the Lord comes back to Joseph and says, it's safe to go home, but don't go back to Bethlehem. Because remember, Bethlehem is the hometown, the family center of the royal house through David. So they head up to Nazareth. So look up at the top of your map. You see up there by the Sea of Galilee? That little town called Nazareth, as we discussed previously, it may have had about 150 folks in it, but not isolated from what was going on around the little town. So they end up, Joseph, Mary, and Jesus end up in Nazareth, which is Mary's hometown for sure, probably also had relatives, Joseph had relatives there as well, uh, and um, that's where they set up housekeeping is in Nazareth. Notice that it is close to both Jewish and Roman cities. You see that? Tiberias is a Roman city. Cana is a Jewish city. Nain is a Roman city. Jesus lived in the midst of a complicated and complex culture. We tend to think that the people of the Bible lived in some kind of moral purity, like their surroundings were morally pure in some way, or they made it that way. That's not true. Jesus lived in a corrupt, oppressive society. The government was corrupt. His people were in the vast minority, that vast minority. He is surrounded by people who do not believe in God, nor do they worship God. They are polytheists. They believe in a pantheon of gods, shepherded by Zeus, right? So, or Jupiter in this case, by the time you get to Rome. But there's the same, they're the same pantheon of, of deities. Notice that Jesus doesn't stand up against this corrupt system. We're in a season of politics. I'm just going to say what's here. <laughs> right? right? Notice Jesus does not try to establish a theocracy. Notice Jesus does not try to usurp the government. What does he say about his kingdom? His kingdom is not of this world, but is also the kingdom has come. We're going to find out in a couple in the next week. The kingdom has come. The kingdom is here. Jesus said, "The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, is at hand." In the Gospel of Mark, when Jesus comes, the real kingdom is already there, and what He does to live that out walk that out and demonstrate that is the work of the church even today. Everything in the Gospel of Matthew from chapter 1 through chapter 4 leads up to what we call the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, and everything, chapter 8 to the end, deal with how does Jesus then live out chapters 5, 6, and 7. 
Chapters 5, 6, and 7 sit as the pivot point for the entire gospel. It's very important to remember. And notice, observe for yourself. How does Jesus deal with his surroundings? How does Jesus deal with people? How does Jesus deal with government? How does Jesus deal with himself? How does he purport himself? How does he walk? How does he talk? It's very different than what we do in our world today, is it not? I, it's not, that's what the, honestly, that's what the Lord has convicted me about in this political season, is to say, how, how did Jesus deal with his difficult and corrupt governmental system? How did Jesus deal with it? If that's how Jesus dealt with it, then that's how I'm supposed to deal with it. So just kind of make a running list somewhere, either in your head or on your phone or in a piece of paper as we go through this. How is Jesus dealing with all this? Because it's all there in the background. It's all there in the background. The worship of Caesar, pagan cities around him that he and his daddy work in. And when I say daddy, you mean you know what I mean, legal father, oh, Joseph. No. Okay, do I have to keep saying that? Uh, y'all no. Mean, right, all right. Okay. <laughs> this is where they end up is in north, northern Israel. Now, flip over your paper. These are the historical tribes... In the time of Joshua, right after Mount Sinai, right after the Exodus, after the people called Israel make it successfully into the Promised Land after their 40 years wandering, <coughs> this is the division, at least one rendering, of the division of the 12 tribes of Israel. Okay? Now I want you to notice up at the top, up by the Sea of Galilee, okay? There is no Nazareth. Do you see that? Yeah. Okay, Nazareth, comparatively speaking, in Israel's history is a very young city. As a matter of fact, it took them a long time for archaeologists to even find the thing because it was so small. It seems to have been a settlement, again, in response to the temple system that was in place, which we discovered last week was corrupt. Remember, Herod killed off the legitimate priesthood and put his own in. So th these were uh, governmental puppets that were the high priests, plural. There should have been only one high priest, according to Scripture. But Herod put in this place of sort of a rota rotational system that was governmental. So church and state were absolutely intertwined. And it seems that there were some Jews who did leave the Jerusalem, Bethlehem area to get out away from the corruption and settle so that they could practice their faith as they saw best. Right? So that's, a, that's, again, that's another statement on the part of Jesus' family as to what their response was to a corrupt system. That's, that's what they chose to do. All right, so up here at the top, um, this is from East Manasseh, Naphtali, Asher, Zebulun, Iskar, uh, Gad, West Manasseh, Ephraim, Dan, and Reuben. Uh, are what are known as the ten northern tribes. This is what becomes known as Israel after the death of Solomon. The ten northern tribes, essentially from the Dead Sea north. After the death of Solomon, these became known again as the ten northern tribes. 
from the Dead Sea south, Benjamin, Judah, Simeon. Now, Simeon gets absorbed into Judah, so does Benjamin. And that becomes known as Judah. The southern tribes, Benjamin, Simeon, Judah, get absorbed into one tribe called Judah. So again, the ten tribes of the north are Reuben, Ephraim, Dan, Manasseh 1, Manasseh 2, Issachar, Zebulun, Naphtali, Asher, right? That whole little thing. If you'll look on your notes page on the back, the notes page on the back, this is the history of captivity. And the reason I'm going into all of this is because Jesus ends up being, Matthew's setting up Jesus in a particular way, and he's setting up Herod in a particular way. And he combines all of these events into Jesus and Herod. And this is history that every Jew would have known because it would have been told over and over and over and over and over, just like we know our American history. We know that in 1776, so and so and so. So every child that was Jewish would have known their historical past, all right? But we don't that well. So if you look on the back, first of all, I want to just dispel a mythology that's out there on the internet and in the water in Christian circles. There are no ten lost tribes. Stop. <laughs> they do not exist. When the Assyrians <clears throat> took over a people group, let's just say they forcefully made it clear that your people were to be obliterated through death, deportment, they would send you off, or through, let's just say, forced mixing, assimilation. Soldiers would come in and do what soldiers were asked to do with the women, and impregnate as many as possible, and dilute the genetics, so that the children were Assyrian rather than northern Jewish tribes, okay? And this happened, they would also bring in other people groups that they had conquered from different parts of the world. So, so this was, that was who the Samaritans are. By the time you get to the, the, the time of Jesus, the Samaritans are this mixed genetic group of people that were left in the northern part of Israel after the Babylonian and Assyrian captivities. Okay? <laughs> that was all that was left were just a few people that were, um, you couldn't tell what people group they were from anymore. Didn't matter. They were the Samaritans. That was what they were called. Okay. Um, the rest of the ten tribes were just dissolved into the genetic abyss that became Assyria. Right? Now again, this all happened, as you see on here on your chart, in the back of your notes, this is a, this is a good chart. So around 734 B.C., you have the first invasion of the northern kingdoms. Remember, the northern kingdoms was under Jeroboam, and the southern kingdoms were under Rehoboam. Rehoboam is the son of Solomon. But in 734 B.C., the Assyrian kingdoms were under uh, Tiglath-Pileser. He comes in and invades northern part. And basically from that point on uh, until you have, um, really in 722, 
when Sargon comes in, that's when they're wiped out. Forced assimilation, taken off, all that. The Assyrians do make an incursion into Judah, and there are a few captives taken, but by and large, the, the southern kingdom stays intact. It's able to coalesce and stay together longer. And that's when you have the lineage of Asa and, uh, uh, sorry, Asa and Josiah, and all of those people are in the southern kingdom. And they stay together until the Babylonians come in, all right, in 605. BC and in 537 BC they're actually taken off to captivity in Babylon. That doesn't happen all at once. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are a part of a brain drain that the Babylonians do to take away the young and promising and send them off in hopes of assimilating them. Of course it doesn't work particularly well but they do try to take them off. And that's where, as we talked about last week, was the influence of the Magi. On the Magi was from this interplay between the southern tribes, Judah, that get taken off to Babylon, and the people, the local people in Babylon. Why is all this important? Because it influences the Israel that is the time of Jesus. Heavily. At the end of the Babylonian captivity, the Persian Empire comes in, they allow them to go home, but again, only about 20, 25% go home. And these are the folks that come back to southern Israel and under Greek and Roman rule, establish their sort of sub-kingdom of Judaism. All right, They're able to practice their faith as long as they don't butt up too hard against the Roman government. And then that sets the stage for where we are with Jesus. So your first question here on your worksheet is how does Matthew make Herod seem like Pharaoh? So going back to the Exodus story, how is Herod like Pharaoh? Yes, he had all of the male children killed. He asked the midwives to kill them, right? So Exodus 1.16 accounts this, records this command from Pharaoh to kill off the boys. Why would you do that? To keep a king from being born. To keep a king from being born and also to diminish your military strength. That's right. Because when a lot of boys are born, it's usually going to be a war born. That's, That's right. Right, exactly. So you think about it. If you've got, if you're an Egyptian and you're the monarchy of the Egyptian people and you have a large people group that is enslaved and outnumbers you and you are afraid they're going to rise up against you. And you're a ruthless king. Kill off the boys. Because they might rise up against you. Take you over. And treat you like you've been treating them all these years. Hmm. No parallel in our society today, is there? Oh, 
We ain't got time to unpack that one. The pastor's already done a good job with that. Amen? Amen. So Matthew sets up Herod as an equivalent to evil Pharaoh. But what's interesting is that he also combines the role of Herod and Pharaoh, but also the other oppressors of Israel. Because if you look at C on your handout, how is Herod like the other oppressors and captors of Israel? Matthew doesn't quote from the book of Exodus here. You would think he would quote from the book of Exodus, but rather he quotes from the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah 31.15 is this little quote about Ramah, uh, you know, is that's of course, which is, of course, the mother of all Israel, if you will. She's crying because her children are being killed, literally and metaphorically, again, all Israel. And, and this, Jeremiah is a prophet against the Assyrian. Hi, this is Pastor Kim breaking into the lesson to correct a grievous error on my part. Jeremiah is actually a prophet to the southern kingdom of Judea, not the northern. He is prophesying against the impending Babylonian captivity. And so my apologies for this error. Thank you for uh, your forbearance in my humanness. And now let's return back to the lesson. Thank you. Matthew is pulling together these historical figures of oppression all into Herod. He's just wrapping them all up around him to say Herod represents all of this. And now Jesus is coming on the scene and his name means what? What's Jesus mean? God saved. God saved. Okay, Yeshua, right? His name's not actually Jesus. Yeshua means God saves, or you could also translate it as God restores. God restores. Now, faithful Jews were looking for God to restore this kingdom, the historic kingdom. <laughs> but that's not what Jesus does. He is more concerned about the internal kingdom of his people. He is more concerned about the spiritual kingdom that is for the benefit of all the world, not just Jews. Because again, the mission of the people called Israel was to be the example to all the world of who God is and that all people would be drawn toward their creator and come into right relationship with their creator. You see, when you're chosen, as the Jews were chosen, it wasn't chosen and we in and y'all out. That's not it. They were chosen for a reason to demonstrate to the entire world, all the people, that this is what it looks like when you live in relationship with God and you too can come be a part of this restored relationship. This is what God requires. This is who he is. This is how he made you to live. Don't you want to live like this? Unfortunately, the people called Israel messed that up, right? They didn't live like God said. And who would want to live like that? So Jesus, God in the flesh, has to come on the scene to say, let me show you what I meant. This is how I meant for you to live. This is it right here. Watch me. 
follow me and you'll know what I mean, what I meant by the end of the Torah. Okay? So then that asks the question, it's like, well, how is Herod then like the other captors and the other oppressors? How, how is Herod like, like them? He wants all the power. Good. He holds his own people captive. He holds his own people captive to the Roman government. He's oppressive. But he didn't want them worshiping God. He wanted them worshiping him. Well, not worshiping him, but he was open, let's just say. He never got up and said, y'all worship these pantheon of gods. That would, he wouldn't do that. But he would say, your Roman government, your Roman overlords allow you to have all that you have. You owe them your allegiance. You need to serve in their army. You need to pay their taxes. That kind of thing. So he made clear to the people called Israel that they were to hold allegiance to the Roman government. Much in the same way as in Babylon, the Jews had a relative autonomy. They governed themselves within the boundary of where they settled, but they still had an overlord. The king of Babylon, the kings of Persia, were still their overlords. They were not truly free people. When Jesus comes on the scene, Matthew casts him as the second Moses. So think about it. How is Jesus the second Moses? What does he do? First of all, what's his name? Yeshua, which means Jesus saves or restores, right? Or rescues, any of those. So, well, that's one way he's like Moses. He takes yeah. his people out of captivity spiritually. He's there to give them some hope. He's there to give them some hope. Very good. He gives them authority. He stands up to the corrupt religious authorities. Does it always have women have teaching? Because I can't remember Moses doing any teaching. Moses gives the law. Gives the law. So he does teach that. Yeah, right. But he gets his word from God just like right. Jesus gets his word from God. Good. So Jesus is getting his word from his father just like Moses got his word from God on Mount Sinai. Good. Yes, sir. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. Hey, you got it. So, how, yes, ma'am. And he's there to show them that there is another way. Yes, he's there. Jesus is there to show them a, that there's another way, a new way, a new pathway. This is the kingdom of God rather than the kingdom of humanity. Okay? Yes, ma'am. I'm not actually sure how to say what Moses performed for miracles, but Jesus performed miracles and Moses performed them things that people found to be impressive. I don't want to call it miracles. No, he did. He did perform miracles. Yes, Moses did. Moses did perform miracles. And they both had to give them from God because like Moses had to ask for and then God gave Jesus the, the ability to do it just like he gave Moses the ability to do certain things because he prayed every time he performed one, it seems like. Right, yeah, Jesus and Moses were praying people. Absolutely. Now, of course, obviously the difference between Jesus and Moses is that Jesus is God in the flesh. Moses is just a man. 
only a man. Remember, Jesus is 100% God and at the same time 100% human. Now, for us, that's a difficult concept. But that's what the scripture gives us. That's the concept that the scripture gives us. That at all times he was hooked up to the Trinitarian reality, but he's also at one place at one time in the Gospels while he's here on earth. Okay? When he's in this tent of flesh, the second person of the Trinity could only be at one place at one time. Okay? The rest of God, all of God, because there's only one God, Jesus is intimately hooked up to the Spirit and the Father at all times, internally. So good, that's how Jesus is like Moses. Excellent. So this whole concept about the Nazarene or being from Nazareth, now this is a very interesting thing that Matthew does. It's unclear why he calls him a Nazarene, except that there is the Old Testament reference to the people called the Nazarites, these are not to be confused, so let me break this down. Nazareth is a town, and it was not in existence until really not too long before the time of Jesus. It's just a settlement, again, of, of, of probably his family. Nazarene and Naz is, is someone who's from Nazareth, the little town. Nazarite has to do with a First Testament designation of people like Samson, who didn't drink, who had long hair, and who were utterly committed to the service of God. They were like priests, except they weren't priests. Okay, This could be anybody. Anybody could take a Nazarite vow. Any male, at least, could take a Nazarite vow for a period of time. What? No, Nazareth wasn't even in existence when the concept of a Nazarite came into being. And they're not related. So it's totally different entity. A Nazarite is just a person. That right. It's a title. So again, Nazareth and a Nazarene are somebody from Nazareth, this little town that came from like first century Palestine. Okay? Where Jesus' was, family was from. Completely separate issue from being a Nazarite. Which again, think Samson... Long hair, I never shaved, beard or hair, never drank alcohol, was supposed to be sexually pure. Almost made <laughs> All right. Was supposed to be exemplar in their behavior, and they were dedicated 100% to the service of God. And you didn't have to be a Nazarite forever. You could be a Nazarite for a period of time. Okay. In order to fulfill a vow or to do something special God had asked you to do, and then when your time of being a Nazarite was over, you'd shave your head and you would go back home to your wife. All right? <laughs> but there was, there, there was, it was a special sort of encased time. Again, kind of like being a priest. If you think like a Catholic priest. That was kind of that designation. Okay? In our modern, that would be a parallel of sorts. So these are not these are two different things. However, Matthew seems to either get them confused or intentionally combines them. It's unclear in the text. When it says here at the end of chapter two, 
Um, he should be called a Nazarene. If Matthew is combining what it seems to do to be, at least to me, is that he is combining the concept of a Nazarite, somebody who's, who's, who's dedicated to the service of God, like Jesus, right? And being from Nazareth. He just bashes the two together like a musical mashup. Um, although they're not technically related at all. Only Matthew does this. Hmm? Uh, it, it, well, he's reading the Hebrew. It's clear that Matthew is reading the gospel, I mean, reading the First Testament in Hebrew. He's not reading it in Greek. So, yes, absolutely. So John the Baptist is also another example of taking a Nazarite vow. Okay. He was born with that vow, wasn't he? God he was given that vow. So he had to take it on now. Yeah. Okay. You can, even if your mama says you are one, doesn't mean you take the choice, right? <laughs> so, uh, but yes, he, he took on that role of being a Nazarite. He's not married. He doesn't hang out with women. Okay. <laughs> he has long hair. He doesn't drink. And he's very different than his contemporaries. He's noticeably odd. <laughs> okay, there were desert hermits, essentially. We find in the church a representation of this in the monastic, early monastic life. You have people who become desert hermits, who go out and take a Nazarite vow in the New Testament. I mean, not, well, not in the New Testament itself, but after the New Testament. So Jesus is cast in this same light by Matthew. Uh, somehow of being someone who is separated and apart and dedicated to God in a very special way. It's clear that Jesus does not take a Nazarite vow. He drinks alcohol. He uh, doesn't say anything about him cutting, uh, not cutting his hair. He has nice clothes. He hangs out with people that you're not supposed to hang out with. Um, he has women that follow him in his group. He has female disciples. What we do know is that he's celibate. Amen. So, <laughs> what we do know is that he took on part of that Nazarite distinction. Dedicated to God, celibacy. And a wandering prophet, if you will. All right? But on the other side, he doesn't take all of the vow. You never see him. He's not like John the Baptist. Okay, he, again, he has nice clothes. He goes to weddings. <laughs> um, you know, those kinds of things. So he exemplifies, again, Matthew kind of puts that out there, I think really very simply to say Jesus is set apart. He's different. Avoid the bottom of your Bible. All those commentaries, just avoid them. Do the language work. Yeah. And with the internet, you can. Every layperson in here, you don't have to read Hebrew or Greek in order to go to BibleHub.com or BibleStudyTools.com and get basic definitions and basic background. This, on the back of your page, came from BibleStudyTools.com. Every person has this available to them. This is not something I got out of a seminary textbook. 
When I say BibleStudyTools.com and BibleHub.com, I'm giving you safe places to go. Safe places to go. Do not go to, and I'm making this up, but it serves as a paradigm. EndTimesProphecyJesusNow.com <laughs> Run far away. Sounds good. Any, any of that business is spurious at best and just wrong at worst. Okay. Have a, well, have a new book every every five years. You know, if they can come, they can come up with a gimmick, they'll have one, right? Yes. And BibleStudyTools.com as well as BibleHub.com will speak the words for you. If you click it, it'll pronounce it. Okay. You got a little got a little speaker beside it. Has anybody used this, these tools? Good. Everybody should go. Everybody should go to BibleStudyTools.com and or BibleHub.com and spend some time, spend some time looking at this stuff. This is the historical background behind the Bible itself. And to do a thoroughgoing study of Scripture, you've got to know this stuff. You've got to have some passing knowledge of the Hebrew history, of the Jewish history, because that's the, the bucket that it sits in. Yeah. That's the bath that it's saturated in. The Bible, the words in the Bible don't sit in some kind of ether, like just floats around. It has feet, and those feet are planted in the land called Israel. We, we, you may not like that, but that's the reality. And those feet haven't left. Those roots are still there. And so to rip those roots out and make the Bible say what we want it to say for now, ooh, it's just irresponsible. So yes, I, I mean, at a very general level, Jesus came from the whole beginning. Absolutely. But at a, at a deeper level, if you hook it back up to that Nazarite, which is what Matthew's quoting, is from the verse about Nazarite vows. Matthew, again, seems to mix these in some way is to basically say Jesus is one who's set aside and dedicated to God. Period. Right? That makes sense? Okay. Uh, go ahead. Yes. Does he also allow us to see what you're saying uh, the humanity as well as the holiness? He, he allows us to see that Jesus is very much God very much man. And so in those two distinctions, he gives us a holy peace, but he, he connects again to family or to people. Absolutely. You're 100% correct. Absolutely. Thank you for that. Yeah, he is. Matthew is trying to make him as human as possible, while at the same time reveal that he is God. At the same time, you know, because think about it. After the resurrection, after the ascension, the disciples have to make sense of this. <laughs> it's like, what just happened? <laughs> you know, uh, over these last three years, what just happened? Had to process all this. And so they got together and processed it in community. It had never happened before. It ain't happened again. All right? So how do we 
process the fact that we get up every morning and say the Shema, hear O Israel, the Lord your God is one, and yet we have experienced God in the flesh through Jesus. How do we deal with that? How do we process that? Then he gave the Holy Spirit, right? Yeah. He showed them a way that some of went against some of the poor teaching in, in the sense that you were to shun certain people, whereas Jesus brought all people needed. And, and so, thereby showing them a ministry that was far, um, far more human. It's interesting because what Jesus does is he goes against the prevailing interpretation of Torah. Wow. Now, Torah on its own was very inclusive, wow. but it had become exclusive. Because what do people do? If you've had a special revelation from the Lord, well, it's my revelation. <laughs> it's my little special revelation, right? And so we do what? Cordon people off. And that's exactly, thank you, of what Jesus was dealing with, is that the religious elite had said, us four and no more. Uh, and y'all can just go to H-E double toothpicks. No way could they have done it without the work of the power of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, the Spirit of the Father, which is the Holy Spirit. Absolutely. Yes. They couldn't have done it by themselves because all the time Jesus is with them. He's with them, and he always asks them, don't you believe? Don't you see? I'm here with you. How is it you don't have faith? And we've done this. But then it's like you were not here with me because you didn't trust, you didn't do, you didn't really believe. You saw it, but you didn't. It didn't really get into you. So right? They had a hard time understanding what Jesus was doing a lot of times. Right? Yeah. They had a hard time understanding. They didn't get it most of the time. And they were there. And they were standing there looking at it. Uh, and that is so. Finally, for someone like Peter, when the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God Himself comes and imbues his life, saturates his life, and it's like the light bulb goes on. Oh! That's what all that was about. Okay. Um, because you can experience stuff, but unless it's hooked up to the power of God, <laughs> um, it doesn't make sense as to what God, you see God at work. So the, old, the rabbis teach... After the temple, destruction of the temple, the rabbis taught that you you could not uh, study Torah, study the word, if you didn't intend to live it. And if you were living it, then you would see God at work in your surroundings. Jesus teaches the same kind of progression. He who has ears to hear, he who has eyes to see, 
And you can't have those eyes and ears, really, without saying, Oh, Lord, teach me to hear. Teach me to see. Holy Spirit, help me to see you at work in the middle of this. God is God with us. God is not the great fixer. He is the great wither. He's with us. And in being with us, there is healing. In being with us, there is redemption. In being with us, there is a new heaven and a new earth. In being with us, but he doesn't always stop a hurricane. That's right. That's right. That's right. Because he is, he's sovereign. We can pray, and we should pray. But if God doesn't answer our prayer like we want it answered, that doesn't mean God's not God. That's right. Right? And then it is our job to be with him where he is with people. Okay? So, our, if, 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 you know, my job then is the church, and I'm saying me, collectively the usins, the, the grand all y'all, as we say here in Texas. The third person plural. <laughs> All y'all in the church. <laughs> Our job is to be with the people in Haiti. In whatever way we can be. If that's a check, or if that's going there, or if or if that's sending somebody, whatever it means to be God with us, then that's who we need to be. Because God's with us. And for the world to see Jesus, we got to be Jesus. The people of God have to begin to see Jesus as their example. We say this, but do we do it? Again, as the rabbis teach, don't study the Bible if you don't intend to do it. Yeah. Please don't, because you defame it. Yeah. That speaks about a lot of people, Pastor. Lord, it speaks to all of us. Yeah. You know? Every day. That's why you pray before you come to the Word, right? It's like, oh, Lord. <laughs> I come to your Word. Give me the strength. Imbue me. Help me to lift my eyes, take it off myself, and look at the world around me and say, where can I live this Word today? Where can I live your Word today? Where can I be your hands, your feet, your mouth, your eyes, your ears? Today, who can I listen to? Who can I give a cup of water to? All right, so let's let's, let's close up. Here we go. So the whole point at the end of the book of, of, of second chapter of Matthew is to again elevate Jesus to being the second Moses. He has come to deliver and rescue his people from their oppression, but not physically. Basically, Matthew's saying you can be free and still be in chains. Yeah. It's not what we like to hear. No, that's the way it is. But that's what we see. Because Jesus does not go against the Roman government. But his what he leaves the people in the power and work of the Holy Spirit, his spirit eventually does overcome the Roman government. Hundreds of years later, it does defeat the system. But from the inside out, not through arms, right. not through swords and spears. So again, Jesus is set up as the second Moses. Herod is set up as the embodiment of all the evil oppressors that have ever come against Israel. Right. <laughs> and Matthew just paints him that way. 
and that there is hope. Even in the darkest situations, there is hope. And that light begins with Jesus. So this week, turn your eyes on Jesus. Whatever nuttiness goes on out there, turn your eyes on Jesus. Keep praying for people. Pray the word. Pray his word. And during this time, as we are ready, you know, for Yom Kippur is coming up to celebrate the death and the salvation of Jesus, the salvation he, he, he bought for us, make sure you're taking care of your relationships. That you are, if you've offended somebody, if, if there's a problem at work that needs to be resolved, You've been having a feud with somebody for 15 years. This is your week to fix it. Yeah. Okay? It may not fix. Right. That's true. But you can be humble yeah. and say, you know, for the part, my part of this, I am so sorry for doing this, this, and this. Yeah. The Lord has convicted me. And walk away. Don't expect them to say anything. Don't expect them to say, you know what, and I'm so sorry too, because it probably ain't going to happen. <laughs> but it's not your business. Right. Your That's business right. is to do what God's asking you to do. That's right. That's right. Clear your conscience. Clear your heart. So that when you come on Wednesday, Tuesday night and Wednesday, you've laid it all down. Yeah. God has given us an opportunity annually to assess ourselves. We shouldn't do it every day. Right. But... To once a year say this is a time to uh, you know to assess where I am. What are my bad habits? What's my stuff I need to get rid of? What are my bad attitudes? What are these things that persistently have a hold of me? I'm going to be delivered in the name of Jesus from these this year. Okay, very good. Next week we'll continue uh, into chapter three. Uh, we will do up to. We'll do all of chapter three next week. Okay? All of chapter three. All right. Would anyone like to close us in prayer? All right. Brother Porter, thank you. So similar attitude of prayer. Go to the front. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again being here in the midst of us, Lord, as we study your word. Help us to be genuine doers of your word, Father, and not hearers only. We ask your blessings on Pastor Kim as she continues to give us your word, to feed us your word, help us study, help her to grow as she grows us. We thank you for all the people in the room here, Father. Bless each household. Cover them with your love. We ask your forgiveness, Father, for our sins that we committed against you in thought, word, and deed. Help us to be mindful to always forgive others as quickly as possible. Help us not to lead, uh, help us not to yield to temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. We know that you are the great I am, and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Thank you for joining us today. Next week, we'll continue in our study with Matthew chapter 3. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face to shine upon you and grant you peace. Have a blessed week.